0: As I said, nobody likes evaluations, and if you do, come up afterwards, I know the name of a good psychiatrist. Nobody really enjoys this, especially, nobody likes evaluations, nobody likes employee reviews, especially if it's in comparison to another person. Is that not true? Now, and this is exactly the situation the Apostle Paul found himself in with the Christians in Corinth. So turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, and if you're new to the Bible, and I hope, I always hope that we have people within our church who are brand new to the Bible. So if you're new to the Bible, 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament, so the back half of the Bible. And it's right after the book of Romans. The New Testament begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is after the book of Romans. It's right before the book of 2 Corinthians, which is helpful. You know, if you're new, that's that's super helpful. Um, So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians. We've been in the book of 1 Corinthians now for about 10 weeks, and we'll be there for a little bit longer. Um, So here's what's happening in the book of 1 Corinthians, if you're just now joining us. The Christians in Corinth were ranking their pastors. Can you believe such a thing would happen? (laughs) They were ranking their pastors, and they were saying, I like Paul. And many, many of them did, because Paul was the guy who planted the gospel in the soil of Corinth, and a great many of them were converted under Paul's ministry. And so many of them said, I like Paul. And then some others said, well, I like Apollos. And we know from Acts chapter 18 that Apollos was a gifted orator. We're, we're told he's mighty in the scriptures and he's persuasive in speech. So he was gifted with oratory polish. And so a great many of them were saying, we like Apollos. We, we identify with and we, we, um, we belong to Apollos. And some others were saying, well, we belong to Cephas and Cephas was Peter's Aramaic name. And so some were saying, "Forget Paul, forget um, Apollos. Peter's where it's at. Peter's our Peter's the guy, and his particular ministry is what we want to follow." And so what they were doing is they were judging their pastors, and they were using worldly wisdom to evaluate them. The, the metrics that they were were using didn't come from the cross. The metrics that they used came from. The culture around them. You, they were using worldly wisdom to evaluate them. Because remember, the Corinthians, we've talked about this several weeks now, the Corinthians loved paid rhetoricians. Remember, they didn't have TVs. They didn't have uh, movies. They didn't have social media. What they had was paid rhetoricians who used their oratory skill and you could pay them and they would talk semi intelligently on any host of, any host of topics. Any subject you liked. You paid them money. They would speak semi intelligently on any number of topics that you wanted. And their goal wasn't to inform you per se. Their goal was to impress you. Well, why would that be the goal? So that you would put more money in their pockets. That's the goal. That was the goal for them. I don't really care if what I'm telling you is what they would in their minds. What they would say is I don't really care if what I'm saying is true to these people. But if I can impress them enough, they'll stick around longer. They'll put a little bit more money in my pockets. I've told you before, it's just like cable news. Uh, It's just like cable news. They don't really care if they tell you the truth. They want to just anger you enough so you'll stick through the commercial breaks. Because if you can stick through the commercial breaks, that they can monetize that. It's a lot like social media influences in our culture where you can monetize your influence by the amount of likes and follows and how long people watch your videos. This was what was happening in Corinth. And so they took that idea and they imported it right into the church. And the Corinthians, they loved rhetoricians who could do this well. And you couple that. Now take that idea, the paid rhetoricians, they love the oratory skill. And you couple that with... The ethos of competition that was embedded in the city of Corinth. And it's a recipe for disaster for a church. Remember, the ethos of competition was because nobody was from Corinth. Corinth was a lot like modern-day New York and Los Angeles, where nobody was from there, but everybody came there because it was a commercial center. Corinth was known as Rich Corinth, meaning people would come there with the hopes of getting rich and then moving back to where they came from. And so the way you got rich was through the competitions of goods and services, right? Just like in our culture, competition of goods and services. And then also embedded in that city was this ethos of competition because they hosted the Isthmian Games, which was second in, in uh, size only to the Olympic Games. And also uh, Corinth was the first city that they invented the gladiator games. And so... T- t- uh, embedded in that culture, in that, in the ethos of that community was this idea of competition. So you take the oratory skills that they loved and the competition that they just thrived on. And if those are your metrics of success and that gets imported into the church, you can see why they started evaluating pastors by these metrics. And they, they brought all of this right on into the church. By the way, let me make this really, really clear. Um, We do the same thing in our culture. We import our culture's metrics of success right on into the church, whether you know it or not. Ministry success in a great many places is gauged by the three B's. Bricks, butts, and bucks. The three B's. A lot of times, a lot of American churches... How they gauge success in ministry is by the three Bs. Uh, how big is your building? That's the bricks. How big is your building? Uh, the second one, uh, but how many people do you run? You go to pastoral conferences sometimes, and that's always the question. How many people do you run there? It's like you guys are cattle or something. It's like the most frustrating term I hear sometimes. I'm just like, oh my gosh. Uh, and then bucks, how big is your budget? And again, all of now we... You could hear that and you could think, well that, all of that comes straight out of the business world. Because in America, we love business. That's the business model and that gets imported straight into the church. By the way, um, th- those are not the metrics that our elder board used to evaluate me, by the way. Just, just throwing that out there. Praise the Lord. Um, that's not, those aren't the metrics, but that is common. That is commonplace in the American church. And again, this is what the Corinthians were doing. They were ranking and judging the pastors, Paul particularly, by the culture's standards of success. And so Paul, since chapter 1, we've been dealing with this topic from the very beginning all the way in chapter 1. And it it continues all the way through chapter 4. It's this long section. The hardest section in the book of Corinthians is this first section we're working our way through. And Paul's been dealing with this since chapter 1, telling the Corinthians, you're being shaped by the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of the cross. You're being shaped by the wisdom of this world. You're taking your cues from the culture rather than from the cross. And what that does is it is leading to disunity in the church rather than unity. Paul's been stressing the theological implications of the cross for the unity, that it's the work of Christ through the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit in taking the truth of what Jesus did on the cross and making it glorious in our sight and enlivening us by the spirit and enlightening us. Uh, he's, he's been giving you all these theolo- theological implications and then you could be thinking at this point that Paul is all head and no heart. He's just a talking guy that all he thinks about is theology and there's no affection in his heart. And that's why today's text is such a good counterbalance. Because beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, we really begin to see Paul's heart as he pours out his affections for the Corinthians. His pastoral heart gets expressed first by calling them brothers and sisters in verse 6. And then, by calling them beloved children, in verse 14, and then lastly, he likens himself to their father, in the back end of the of the passage. So Paul goes from Paul the theologian, to Paul the pastor, and his pastoral heart gets expressed, clearly expressed. And it's a good reminder for us, by the way, um, that faithful servants must have in equal part a great love for the word of God, but in equal part, they must have a great love for the people of God. Those two things have to be there in equal measure. In Second Timothy chapter two, Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, "And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness." So he says, in essence, he says, "You want to get pastor you? He needs to have a spine of steel, but also a really soft heart." He has to be able to defend theology, but also befriend people. And this is what we begin to see from Paul, beginning in chapter 4. Paul will do three things in chapter 4, and this will form the outline of our, our of our text this morning. So if you're a note taker, and I know some of you are, I see some of your notes, they're quite good. Uh, you'll want to take note. Here's what the outline is. In uh, verses 1 through 7, he'll recall his ministry among them. Verses 1 through 7, he'll recall his ministry Amongst the Corinthians. That's verses 1 through 7. Verses 8 through 13, he'll remind them of his life with him. How he lived while he was among them. Because it stands in sharp contrast to how the Corinthians were living. So verses 1 through 7, his, he'll recall his ministry among them. Verses 8 through 13, his life with them. And then in, in verses 14 through 21, He'll relay his goal for them. Because he has this fatherly affection. And fathers, good fathers, have goals for their kids. They want to see them grow into maturity. And that's Paul's goal for the Corinthians. He knows that they're not mature, although they think they're mature. You ever have your kids come to you and tell you they're really mature? (laughs) And you look at them and you're like, are you out of your mind? Um, that's that's a little bit like what Paul's going to say to the Corinthians. You, you'll see it. He comes with some severe sarcasm, um, which I love as a person who really enjoys sarcasm. Uh, he will bring some severe sarcasm to the Corinthians. He will rebuke them by using sarcasm. We'll see how he does it. So let's get into the text. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And Paul's going to recall his ministry among them. Here's what he says. Beginning in verse 1, this is how one should regard us. He's talking about he and the other ministers, uh, the other servants of the Lord. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself. Wouldn't you like to be able to say that about yourself? Every time I read that, I think, man, i got a long ways to go here. Uh, For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Why? Well, because it's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. And will disclose the purposes of the heart. Hmm. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. He goes on. He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos. For your benefit, brothers and sisters. That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Not to go beyond what the scriptures say. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of of one against another. I don't want you to be puffed up and haughty. I want you to be full of humility. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? Which, which spiritual gift do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Okay, let's go back here. Uh, so Paul's recalling his ministry among them, and he uses... Two different. He uses two Greek words that are loaded with imagery uh, to describe the ministry that he had among them. The first one, he says, uh, he was a servant of Christ. A servant of Christ. And the term that he uses for servant is not the usual one that Paul uses when he describes being a servant. Uh, he uses the word here, uh, hupateris. And the word means, hupateris, it means someone who is deep in the galley of a ship. He's the under rower, someone who's deep in the galley of a ship, who's just rowing. He's responding and rowing to the command of a higher authority. And that authority is Christ. And Paul says, this is how I was amongst you. I didn't throw my weight around. I didn't come to you and demand you do all the things that I said. My only job was to do the things that the Lord called me to do on the time that he called me to do it. So first he says, I was a servant of Christ. But then the second term he uses is that of a steward of the mysteries of God. And again, this is a, this is imagery that a typical Roman family would have known. They would have understood this really easily because a steward was someone who was given a charge in a household. They were under the command of the owner of the house, but they were given, they were given a position of trust. They were essentially a household manager. They were working, again, under the authority of the owner. But it is a position of trust. And they're to make sure that the house is well managed. They're to make sure that people are nourished at the right times. There's to be order, not chaos to it. This, again, it's a position of trust, but they're working under the authority of the owner. And this, and Paul's saying, this is what we are. This is what I've done amongst you. Well, what, what exactly was Paul responsible for as a steward? Well, we, we read right here, if you're in the NIV, it says the secret things of God, Yeah? If you're in the ESV, which is what I'm using, it says the mysteries of God. And, and what both of those things, it refers to how God's plan of redemption within the old covenant, it was somewhat concealed. But in the new, the new covenant, since the time of Christ, it's been revealed. God's plan of redemption in Christ has been completely revealed as Christ has come and he's lived The life we were supposed to live and he died the death we were supposed to die. And he extends his grace to anyone and everybody who will come to him in faith. It's all about the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ as our saving king. And he says, this is God's plan of redemption. It was concealed in the old covenant. It's been completely revealed in the in the new covenant. And Paul, he's saying, I've been entrusted with this message. This is what I've been entrusted with, this position of trust. This is what I've been entrusted with. It's the message of God's, the gospel of God's grace. For all people. And I've been called, he says, to distribute. I'm accountable to the Lord for how I distribute this message. And so Paul says, you remember, you remember how I ministered amongst you. And then he says, therefore I'm not really all that concerned about your opinion of me. (laughs) Wow. That's kind of a loaded statement by Paul. I'm not all that concerned about your opinions of me. Look at verse 3. Look at what he says. He says, But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. And he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. And will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul says, he says, your evaluations of me mean very little. Now, he's not saying he's not open to correction. He's not saying that at all. But what he is saying is he's only real, really concerned about one evaluation. There's only one evaluation that really matters to him. And that's Christ's evaluation. And this is where all of his energies go. This is where all of his efforts go. He says that, he says in verse three, I don't even have time to spend judging myself. He says, I don't have time for this. All my energies, they go towards working responsibly to the best of my abilities as a steward of the assignment given to me by the Lord. And at the end, when the time comes, I'll be, I'll be accountable at that point. And so therefore, your opinions, I take them with a grain of salt and I just keep working. And you know, that's the right attitude to have as someone who's called into a leadership position. Because if you're going to be a leader of any type of people, in any capacity, you can't live your life as a people pleaser. You simply cannot do it you're going to make decisions that are unpopular hello covid uh, you're going to make decisions that people don't agree with you're going to have people leave in a huff because you've made they think you've made a wrong decision and they don't ever actually consider that you might have more information than they have about the decision that you've just made and so sometimes people will leave in in a, in a huff and the old saying is true you're uh, you're just a nobody until somebody hates you That's actually true. But notice how Paul was not overly concerned with their opinions. How could this be? I mean, was he like a sociopath? I mean, because we all care about others' opinions, do you not? We care, we want to be liked, we want to be accepted. So how could Paul say, I'm not overly concerned about this? How could he, how could he not be overly concerned with others' opinions in him? And maybe a more important question, is how can you not be overly concerned? How can you not be shackled and paralyzed by the opinions of others? Because let's be honest, opinions matter. We want to be liked, we want to be accepted, we want to be loved. So how can we not be overly concerned with the opinions of others? Here's how. And it is the key for moving forward with Christ. Only if, you, only if your identity is rooted in another's. Only if you, only if your identity is rooted in the opinion of another. The only way you're, you're able to move forward when you face rejection is only if there's one person and you've rooted your identity in them and they've completely accepted you. We know this at a human level, right? If the whole world tells you you're not that smart, but your spouse tells you you're quite intelligent, And you have good ideas. You know what it does for you? You move out into the workplace with strength. If the whole world tells you you're ugly or you're unattractive, but your spouse tells you that you're beautiful or you're handsome, you know what that does for you? You move out into the world with confidence. It shapes your identity. And that's at a human level. That's at a human level. Well, how can how can you not be shackled and paralyzed by the opinions of others? How can you move forward when everybody around you has rejected you? Only by recognizing that the only opinion that really matters in the entire universe has looked upon you and has already accepted you in Christ. That's the only way. It's the only way. If, when everybody else has, around you has rejected you. When you recognize and you realize, wait a second the only eyes that really matter the only opinion that really matters has looked upon me in love through the cross that shapes my identity that shapes my reality not the opinions of others that's the only way to move forward you know you see what that actually does the gospel when you really slow down and you consider the gospel the gospel gives you an identity when you realize that you're fully forgiven and fully do- and fully loved what it does is it frees you It frees you from the opinions of others. And you say, well, you may disagree with me. You may have rejected me. But the only love that really matters has already been given to me in Christ. And therefore, I may be disappointed for a season. I may be upset about it. But what it does is it enables you to move forward, serving the Lord to the best of your ability. Not in order to gain his love, because the love's already been given to you but in response to the love that you've already freely received. And this is how, now think about that. this is how Paul was able to move forward. Despite everybody rejecting him, despite everybody saying, well, I like Apollo more, I like this guy more, people leaving here, people doing this thing, people leaving in a huff, he says, I'm able to move forward. Because my main identity isn't in this. My main identity is rooted in the Lord. Because, now listen, if your main identity is in something other than the Lord, other than Christ, if it's in the praise of people, Or if it's in the acceptance of others. Or if it's in business success. Or the amount of likes and follows you have on social media. Or your spouse. Or your career. If those things go against you. If you think you're doing well in your career. But the board of directors call you into your office one day. Just had a friend. This happened to a friend the other day. Thought his career was going really, really well. Got called in by the board of directors. And he got fired on the spot. Completely rejected. Now, if his identity is in that, rather than the Lord, what will that do? It will utterly crush him. But if he says, my identity is not in this career, it's not in this job, it's not in this spouse, as much as I love my spouse, but their acceptance of me can come and go. But Christ's acceptance of you is a permanent reality. You see, if, if you make your identity, if you find your identity in something other than the Lord, those things will... It's all fleeting. And when it goes against you or they reject you, it'll crush you. But if you're in Christ, if you're saying, no, my real identity is in Christ, it'll still hurt, no doubt about it. There'll still be disappointment. You'll still be frustrated. But you'll be able to say, the only opinion that truly matters has looked upon me with love. And I'm fully accepted in him. And therefore, I'm free to serve him. And even if I screw up and make a mess of it, his love for me doesn't change. And that's that's actually what Paul says in verses 6 and 7. He says, I've applied all these things. Everything I've just told you, I've already applied it to me and Apollos. Both, both of our identities aren't in the praise of people. Both of our identities are rooted in Christ. And that frees both of us to serve as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Without finding our identity in what they do for the Lord, but in who they are in the Lord. So Paul, what he does, verses 1 through 7, he recalls his ministry among them. Now in verses 8 through 13, he reminds them of their life of his life with them. Look at what he says. And this is uh and you've got to remember before before you look at it, um, the Corinthians as a church, they were quite proud of themselves. They were spiritually complacent. They thought that they were really wise and spiritually mature. And they thought of themselves so honest to goodness, they thought of themselves as spiritual giants. And the reason they thought of themselves as spiritual giants is because they had some outstanding spiritual gifts. And we'll see that when we get into, uh, chapters 11, 12, and 13. They, they had some outstanding spiritual gifts and they had settled into the illusion that they were living their best life now. But Paul, remember, how does this book come about? Do you remember? Paul had gotten a report about them. <laughs> He knows the truth about them. He knows there's disunity within the church. He knows their sexual immorality. You're in chapter 4? Turn over to chapter 5 real quick. I'll give you a preview of next week, and I know it'll make you want to come to church. Look at chapter 5. Just the first, first uh, one verse, two verses. He says, it's actually reported... There's, there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated, tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you're arrogant or you're boasting about this. See, they, they think they're spiritually mature, spiritual giants. Paul knows the truth. He has the report about them. He says there's disunity in the church. There's there's sexual immorality in this church. You've settled into this illusion that you're living the best life now and that you're really spiritually mature, but that's not the case. And so what he, he does is he starts bringing sarcasm to him. He has the spiritual gift of sarcasm. Which, is, you know, if you want to pray for a spiritual gift for me, you, the Lord could up my dosage of sarcasm. That'd be great. So he starts mocking. What he starts doing is he starts mocking their claim to be spiritually mature. Uh, he's, he's like a parent who will use everything at your disposal to bring about maturity in your kids. To help your kids think more in line with the truth. And sometimes when your kids are completely out of it, the only way to jog them into truth, to jog their little mental realities into truth, is by using sarcasm. Is that not true? That's absolutely true. Sometimes your kids are so out of it mentally that you, you just have to bring loads of sarcasm to get them to say, this is how out of whack you actually are. And that's what Paul does here. Look at what he says. Verse eight. He says, already you have all you want. <laughs> already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. He says, you guys actually think you're kings. And here's how you can tell this is all just sarcasm. He says, and, and I wish that were true. And would that, and would that you did reign? so that we might share the rule with you. This is just dripping with sarcasm. He says, you think you're spiritual giants. You think you've already become spiritually rich. You think you've already advanced and arrived. You think you're ruling and reigning right now. This is You, you think you're spiritual giants, but you're actually just little spiritual nets. You're not really mature, but you think you are. The reason you think you are, now get this, is because they have a theology of glory. What's a theology of glory? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's the first century version of the health and wealth gospel. It's the first century version of live your best life now. It's a theology of glory where you think the paradigm for the Christian life is one of exaltation all the time. When in reality... The paradigm for the Christian life is the cross of Christ. That's the paradigm for the, the Christian life. It's the life of Christ. And what was the life of Christ? It was one of humiliation before glorification. It's humiliation before glorification. That's actually the paradigm for Christian living. There is, will be long seasons. We we say we want to become humble. Well, where does humility come from? It comes from humiliation. We we want to grow into Christ's likeness, but the only way to be conformed to Christ is to actually live the life, live in a way that actually resembles and mirrors the life of Christ. So the pa- the paradigm for the Christian life is humiliation before glorification. And Paul will say this in verses nine through thirteen. Look at what he says. Verse nine. He says for i think for i think that god has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world to angels and to men he he uses uh, again imagery that they would have known he uses the imagery of a triumphal procession of returning roman armies where the captives and the booty are paraded in as a spectacle for all the public to relish in. And then it culminates in the procession, it always culminates with the captured uh, king or the captured general. And these are dead men walking and everybody knows it. They're a spectacle to the watching world. They know they're dead men walking. They're, they're sentenced to death, either through public execution or through the gladiator games. And Paul says... This is how I lived among you. I was a public spectacle for you guys. I was walking dead amongst you, which means he endured tremendous suffering all the way through. He goes on, verse ten. He says, um, "He says we are fools. In, we are fools for Christ's sake. But you're oh so wise in Christ. See the sarcasm." Uh, he says, "I know I know all about this what 's happening here, but you guys are actually considering yourself to be wise he says you 're considering us fools we 're fools for Christ, but you 're wise in christ we 're weak, but you 're oh so strong. you are held in honor, but we in disrepute um, we 're held in disrepute to the present hour. we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed." And buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. And you got to know, working with our own hands, for somebody who was an orator, that meant you were so unimpressive you couldn't make your way as an orator. You had to go work with your own hands. And Paul was saying, no, I did this on purpose. I I did this so I wouldn't be held accountable to you. I did this so that I'd be free to serve you without taking payment for it and be able to tell you the truth. And you're looking at it as a as a disgraceful thing. And I'm actually telling you it wasn't. He says, he goes on, uh, working with our own hands, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. Like the stuff you pick off the bottom of your shoes at the end of a long day. He says, that's how we are. We're like the scum of the world and the refuse Of all things. So Paul contrasts. He contrasts how he and Apollos lived among them. And how they're living. He says we're fools for Christ. But you're oh so wise. Corinthians. We're weak. But you're oh so strong. And the question becomes. How could Paul live this way? How could he live this way? How could he possibly live this way? And be content Without worldly success. How could Paul continue to trust the Lord in spite of suffering? And more importantly for you. Because Paul's dead. More importantly for you is how can you continue to trust the Lord. In spite of suffering. How can you continue to trust the Lord in spite of immense suffering? Now listen. You see if your paradigm for the Christian life isn't the cross. If your paradigm for the Christian life is a, a theology of glory rather than the, the theology of the cross, then any suffering, if, if it's that at all, if your paradigm for life is, isn't the cross, then any suffering that comes your way, it will be random and completely meaningless. And if it's random and completely meaningless, you know what it'll, it'll do to you? It'll leave you despondent. And you will lose all your confidence in the Lord's goodness. However, now listen. However, if your paradigm for the Christian life is the cross of Christ. If you can say with Paul, I decided to know nothing amongst you. Except Christ Jesus and him crucified. Then, then and only then when suffering comes your way. It won't be random and meaningless. It'll actually be meaningful because you know that the suffering of Christ led to your life. And you can trust the Lord that He'll use your suffering to further His purposes. Does that, does that make sense? This is the participatory part where you participate with me. If that makes sense, go up and down with your head. Okay. I know this is, this is a lot right now. Um, but it is the only way that any suffering makes any sense. If you don't have a theology of the cross and any suffering that comes your way will be completely random. And it will be completely meaningless. The theology of the cross, however, says your Savior suffered. And it was purposeful. And it was meaningful. And it actually furthered His work. And when you're in Him, you can trust Him and say, therefore, any suffering that I go through, though I don't like it at all, I run. I try to run from suffering personally. If there's any suffering that comes my way, man, I'm popping Advil like nobody's business. Um, I try to run from it, but it is the only means. It's the way of gospel furtherance. That's the theology of the cross. And let me tell you, if there's one thing the American church needs more of, it's a robust theology of the cross. Because you see, a lot of Christians sitting in a lot of pews are sitting there smugly and very subtly. They think that they deserve a better life than Jesus. Now think about that a lot of Christians and a lot of pews sit there very smugly and they think that they deserve a better life than their savior. And that is just flat crazy making. No, 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 no. Is your life sinless? Uh-uh. But his was, and he endured suffering and we're in him. And therefore what the American church needs, what we need, what I need is a better theology of the cross. And therefore, if you don't have it, when suffering comes your way, you have no, you have no category for it. And more often than not, what happens if a person doesn't have a theology of the cross, when suffering comes their way, you can tell if they don't, because they'll drop the faith altogether. They'll absolutely drop the faith altogether. Now look at what the gospel gives you. Not only does it give you an identity that can't be taken from you, it provides you with tremendous meaning When the realities of life hit you. And let's be honest, the realities of life hit all of us. Some just sooner than later. But the realities of life hit all of us. So Paul, what he does here in verses 8 through 13, he recalled his... Well, yeah, he's recalled his ministry among them. That's in verses 1 through 7. Then he recalls his ministry with them. Now, lastly, in verses 14 through 21... He's going to relay his goal for them, and I'm going to move quick because I'm running out of time. Verse 14, look at what he says. After just all this sarcasm, he says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed. Yes, I brought sarcasm, but it wasn't to shame you, but it was to admonish you. Why? Because you're my beloved children. He says, I I, I want you to grow into Christlikeness. And you can hear, you can hear his pastoral heart here. Even though he had to correct them, he did so with fatherly affection, even, even having to use sarcasm. His love for them remains. He says, you're my beloved children. I really want to see you pursue Christ likeness. Verse 15. He says, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have, you do not have many fathers. You see the word guides there? In that culture, um, a father would hire a guide or a tutor. For essentially the boys' lives, his boys' lives when they're growing up, the guide's job was to instill morality in the lives of young boys. They were to supervise them, they were to instill morality, and they were to teach them. And Paul says, you've had countless guides, but not many fathers. And then he goes on, he says, second part of verse 15, he says, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He says, "I'm, I'm your father in the faith, is what Paul's saying. And his love for them is like a good father, is like a good father's love for their children. And just like any good father, he has a goal for his children. And the goal for his children is to grow up into maturity, to become independent, not tied to the father's strings anymore. He wants them to stand on their own two feet in the faith. He says, I need you to grow into maturity. And so he goes on, verse 16. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, in my translation, ESV, it says I sent you. Some of your translations will say I'm sending you. I actually think that's a better translation. It says, that's why I'm sending you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere and in every church. Now notice Paul's goal here. What's his goal? His goal is actually their discipleship. Their discipleship, that they'd grow into christ likeness. And how does discipleship happen? What does Paul say here? He says it comes about through teaching. He says, I'm going to send you Timothy, and he'll remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere. So part of discipleship, there's a body of content that must be taught, right? There's a body of content that has to be taught. It has to be explained. It has to be shown to be true and wise. So there's a body of content there. So discipleship includes teaching, but then also notice through transparency. That's the second way it happens. Through transparency of life. Paul tells them in verse 16, I urge you then be imitators of me. Again, he's already reminded them how he lived while he was with them. They've watched Paul deal with hardship. They've watched Paul deal with uh, disappointment and trouble. They've witnessed how Christ made a difference in his day-to-day life, how his life was shaped by Christ. Elsewhere in uh, Thessalonians, one of my favorite verses, Paul says this. He says, we loved you so much. Listen to this. This is so great. He says, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, our lives before you, because you've become so dear to us. So more often than not, gospel ministry, good gospel ministry, not just pastoral stuff, but in the day-to-day gospel ministry that you're all involved in, it happens through personal transparency. Where people see how our faith in Christ is lived out on a day-to-day basis. Through times of great rejoicing. But more often than not also, in times of great pain. And in times of great disappointment. So note that discipleship, and we're all called to discipleship. We're all called to um, be a disciple, but then also to disciple others. So note that discipleship is both taught and caught, right? You, there's a, a, a taught that you got to be taught. There's a body of content. But then it's also caught where you, you, you're seeing personal transparency in the lives of others. They catch a vision for how the Lord's love and his spirit is at work in your life. They see the power of the spirit at work in your life and in your day-to-day reality and how it's making a difference. And so it's both taught and caught. Now, notice of what the gospel gives you here because it's quite tremendous. What does the gospel give you? It gives you tremendous purpose for your day to day living. Does it give you an identity that can't be taken from you? Yeah, it does. Does it give you meaning? When the hardships of life's hit, yeah, absolutely it does. But the other thing that the gospel gives you is tremendous purpose in the here and now, because you're called to disciple others, just as Paul was called to disciple the Corinthians, and that includes both teaching and personal transparency. That gives you that gives your life and your your day to day reality tremendous purpose. It's the Spirit at work in you, enabling another person to see how the gospel makes a difference in your life in good times and in bad. That's A tremendous purpose. Paul goes on, verse 18. We'll wrap it up with this. He says, some are arrogant. (laughs) Some of the Corinthians are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. You're talking like I'm not going to come. You're talking like I don't know what I'm talking about. He says, but I will come to you soon. If the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. He says, I'm not just here to hear about talking. I want to see if the Spirit's actually transforming their life. Because that's what the power of the Holy Spirit does. It transforms life. He goes, I'm not just here to hear their talk. I want to see if the the Spirit's actually transforming them. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love? In a spirit of gentleness. And again, he's emphasizing his fatherly affection. He goes, what do you want here? How do you want me to come? The goal is discipleship, and discipleship is going to come about. Maturity will come about. I have a goal. How do you want it to come about? That's what a father will do. And the account ends right there, and we'll do the same. Um, You back away from this text, and you see that Paul had a goal for the Corinthians. And his goal, he like I said, it's discipleship. And discipleship is a Christian word, which means... It's how Christ is formed in another person's life. That's what discipleship ultimately is about, is about Christ-likeness being formed in another, in another Christian's life. Well, how does that come about? If that's Paul's goal, how does that come about? What does Christian formation look like in our lives, and how does Christian formation come about in our lives? Well, let me give you three ways, and we'll close with these. Here's the first one. How does Christian formation come about here 's the first one, and these are real simple. They come straight out of the passage here 's the first one by staying connected to a gospel community, by staying connected to a gospel community that is more concerned with you being impressed by Jesus than you being impressed by the pastor or the church you want to you and this is actually kind of a subtle thing. Um, But a lot of times what happens, what what plagued the Corinthians and oftentimes what plagues many churches today is there's a subtle shift that takes place where the leadership wants you to be more impressed with them or the church than the person of Jesus Christ. And that's a gigantic mistake, but we see it all over the place. Uh, Christian formation, Christian formation is formed long term by staying connected to a gospel community that's more concerned with our relationship with Christ and our growth in Him than the church's growth. you got to get that straight in your mind. You want to be a part of a church. You want to be a part of a health, healthy gospel community. Be a part of a church where they're more concerned with your growth in Christ than the church's growth. But you got, because if you're a part of... Here's why. If you're a part of a church that's more concerned with its own growth... Then your growth. You know what happens? Anything that will enable that church to grow numerically. Gets a pass. And Christ's likeness. Goes out the window. And at that moment you cease being a church. You become a religious club. Christ's likeness goes out the window. Discipleship goes out the window. And the church is no longer distinct from the culture. It's no longer distinct from the culture. And it loses its witness, which is its only value to the culture. So ask yourself, serious question, ask yourself, is my faith community, the faith community that I'm a part of, is it more concerned with my growth in Christ, me conforming to Christ's likeness, or is it more concerned with, with the growth of the church or the conformity to a particular pastor? Because again, this is what was happening in Corinth. They were saying, I like Paul, I like Apollos. I like Cephas. Now the leaders, they, they themselves didn't want that, but this is what they were doing. It was a subtle shift in their thinking. So you've got to ask yourself, is the faith community that I'm a part of, is it more concerned with my growth in Christ than its own growth? And if it is, the numerical growth would come for the church anyways. Because the goal the goal is really conformity to Christ. And the way that happens is to be a part of a gospel community that keeps your attention on Christ and who he is and what he's done. And as you meditate upon Christ, as the, as the church meditates upon Christ, what happens is the Spirit transforms your character. As you lean into what the Spirit's bringing to you in conviction-wise and in challenging you, the Spirit actually transforms you into Christ-like character. This is exactly what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I won't make you turn, but I will read it to you. He says this. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory, one degree, note that. How does Christian growth happen? One degree at a time. We all, let me read again. He says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So you want to grow into likeness, Stay connected to a gospel community. That's more concerned with your growth in the church than the church's particular growth, numerical growth. Here's the second way that Christ Christian uh Christian formation happens. You submit yourself to gospel truth even when it hits you sideways. You gotta you gotta submit to gospel truth even when it hits you sideways. Do you think the Corinthians were being hit sideways with gospel truth? All over the place. The the Corinthians were so screwed up, gospel truth was smacking them up alongside the head all over the place. Paul had to bring correction to the Corinthians. And he does it in some with dripping sarcasm, but he had to bring this correction. And really the rest of the book of the Corinthians, of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, is gospel truth being applied to their situation over and over and over and over again. Because there was so much correction that Paul needed to bring. So much correction that he had to bring to them in order for them to grow into Christ's likeness. And when Paul confronted them, his words obviously hit them sideways. Absolutely hit them sideways. And instead of submitting the gospel truth, they started to bristle against it. And they started to question his authority. And you know, we all have baggage, right, in our Christian walk. We all have our own baggage. We all have our own blind spots. All of us. Myself included and part of our growth in Christ likeness is that when someone who is more mature in the Christian faith not just older in age but who is more mature in the Christian faith they're wiser you can tell by their life that there's more authenticity their walk matches their talk when they come alongside of you and they offer gospel truth into an area that you're struggle with instead of instead of pushing the words away we welcome them we welcome. Why? Well, Proverbs chapter 27, it says this. It says, better is, better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Is that not true? See, the gospel truth, when it's spoken from someone who we know their love is for us, and we've seen the authenticity in their own lives. We've seen the gospel lived out well. We'll be more ready and more able to actually submit to the gospel truth that they're telling us. And that's a hard thing to do. Uh, when I was a young pastor, just, just off the top of my mind, a guy by the name of Bill McCandless, Bill was a retired teacher now with Medford School District, a great guy, really great guy. And I've known Bill for a long time. I taught a passage <laughs> And I imported my theological positions into the passage because they're right and true. So, so I just I just directly imported them into the passage. And Bill came up to me afterwards, and I know Bill uh, has great love for me, and I love Bill. And Bill said, "Travis, um, you misapplied the passage," and he said it very very straightforward. He goes, but I got to tell you, you misapplied the passage. You brought you and he told me exactly what I did. He said, you brought your theology into a passage where the passage didn't preach it. And it stung like heck. And I thought, Bill, how could you say this to me? And I, I was shocked and I was offended and I walked away. And then I called him later that night after driving home for 45 minutes and fuming about it. And, and I thought, he's absolutely right. I went back and I listened to the passage three times, the passage that I taught three times. And I'm like, oh, he's absolutely right. I imported my theology to him. Now, the only reason I was able to submit to that gospel truth is because, and believe me, that's just one time in my life, that's probably the only time in my life that it's actually happened, and I submitted to it right off the get-go. <laughs> um, I just told you my, like, my one good highlight. Uh, <laughs> but the only reason I was able to submit to it in that moment is because Bill's life how, his walk with the Lord actually matched his talk, and I knew he had a deep love for me. It's the only way. See, it's the only way. So, how do we, how does Christian life, how is Christian formation formed in you? Um, when it, when gospel truth hits you, and it will hit you sideways, you have to evaluate it and say, is the person who's speaking it to me, do they love me deeply? And is what they're, t- they're telling me, is it backed up by scripture? And that's that's the only way. So how does it happen? First by staying connected to a gospel community, second by submitting the gospel truth, even when it hits us sideways. Here's the last one. By seeing suffering not as a form of punishment. By seeing suffering not as a form of punishment, but as the means for gospel furtherance. And this is completely counterintuitive to us in our culture. It is completely counterintuitive. You see these men getting up, don't worry, they're getting the communion elements. They're not upset with me, I promise. I see some of your eyes thinking, man, all these guys are getting up all at once. Uh, <laughs> let me repeat the phrase, because when the guys got up, I saw all your heads turn. Um, how do we do this? How does Christ formed in you? By seeing suffering not as a form of punishment, but as the means for gospel furtherance. And again, that is the most counterintuitive thing in our culture. Christian formation comes about when suffering comes our way. We see it not as a form of punishment, but as the means for gospel furtherance. Now, please hear me here. We're not to seek out suffering, right? Some people will will read that list in Paul, what he says there in verses 8 through 13. And they'll say, well, I got to go suffer more. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying that. What he is saying, though, is when suffering comes our way and it comes everybody's way at some point nobody escapes life unscathed so when suffering comes our way we embrace it trusting the lord will use it for his purposes in our lives and in the lives of others well do we actually see this in the life of paul yeah we do turn over i will make you turn over to this one turn over to second corinthians second corinthians Chapter 12. I want you to see this. Once you're in 2 Corinthians 12, skip down to verse 7. Do we see Paul actually embracing the suffering in his life, knowing that it's going to lead to further gospel purposes? We sure do. In verse 7 of uh, 2 Corinthians 12, here's what Paul says. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited. (laughs) So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. This thorn in the flesh is some some type of physical affliction that Paul was suffering with, and he had suffered with it for some time. He goes on, he says, three times, I pleaded with the Lord. About this, that it should leave me. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This this affliction that Paul was suffering with, and that Paul prayed that the Lord would remove it, and when he didn't, Paul says, okay, then this thorn in the flesh is actually meant for my good. This physical affliction that I'm suffering with, though I don't like it, it's actually meant for my good. It's humbled me. It's strengthened me. It's brought me into a deeper dependence upon the Lord, upon the grace of the God in my life. He says, this is actually meant for my good. So the suffering that he endured was actually good for his own life. And he says, this is how, this is how Christ is formed in you. So when, when we see suffering not as a means of punishment, but as the means of gospel furtherance, we can trust that the Lord's using in our own lives, but then we can also trust that the Lord's going to use it in the lives of others. To further his gospel work. Well, why would Paul see it in this way? Why would Paul see suffering not as a means of punishment, but as the means for gospel furtherance? Because the Lord did. Because the Lord did. Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy Set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endures the ultimate suffering. And he sees it. He sees it coming. But he also sees that through it, men and women, you and I, would be reconciled to God. He looked past the suffering into the life that he would bestow on others. And this is now, listen, if you're a Christian, this is why when suffering comes our way, we can actually trust the Lord with it. We can say, okay, Lord, I don't, I I didn't chase this out. I didn't want to suffer, but this has come my way. And I'm going to ask you to use it for your purposes, that you're going to use it to bring forth greater dependence in my life and furtherance of the gospel work in my sphere of influence. Does that make sense? And this is why we come to the Lord's table. So if the guys can come forward and the musicians can come up, this is why we come to the Lord's table, because he endured the cross with you in mind. He looked through the pain and through the suffering. And as he felt, as Jesus felt his life was being given up, he saw new life being given to you. Let's pray. Father, we, we do pray that as your people, we would continually come under your word and you would transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we would better represent you in our day-to-day lives, in good times and in bad, Father. Moment by moment, by the power of the Spirit, that you would give us the words and the ways to represent Christ fully to the people that we're speaking with, the people that we're living with, the people even that we're at odds with, Father. We want to represent you well. And Father, as we leave here and we go back into our homes with our families this afternoon back into the places of work that you've called us to tomorrow. We pray that at every turn and with every opportunity, the good news of the gospel, the reality of who Christ is and what he's done would come spilling out through our lives, out through our lips, out through our hands in service to others. We trust you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.